church family, you're finding the book of Acts chapter 9. We'll begin to read in verse 1. And for a few moments this morning, I want to speak to you on this subject, real salvation. Real salvation. Acts chapter 9. And we'll begin to read in verse number 1 this morning. There the Bible says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. But now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentile kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he preached that Christ in the synagogues and that he is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us and challenge us today. God, I do pray, as we do every week, for the one who might be here today who's never been saved. There's never been that moment where they've turned and by faith trusted Christ to be Lord of their life. We pray they'll do that today. And God, I pray that every believer uh, would be encouraged and, and will grow uh, as they seek to live on mission. And God, this will just be another text that we can use to challenge people about whether they have real salvation. God, I pray as we come to a conclusion of this message today, to a time of invitation, God, simply we ask what that which you desire to do in our hearts and lives will be accomplished as we yield ourselves to your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I'll invite you again to be seated. 
I would submit to you arguably that Saul, who became Paul, is probably the greatest uh, of all Christians that there's ever been. Uh, it's because of his ministry and through his ministry that there's a church here in Greenwood. If you got saved in North America, uh, then you know it's through the ministry of the Apostle Paul that there was a church where you were there uh, that you heard the gospel because it was his ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul has a very unique testimony. We see the beginning of that in Acts chapter 9. But I want you to know, you've got that same kind of testimony. You may not have uh, had a bright light overwhelm you and that you fell to your knees and for three days you were without sight because you had something like fish scales and then someone came laying hands on you. I mean, that's a miraculous story. But friend, I want you to understand this. Every testimony is just as miraculous as that one. The greatest miracle and the greatest work of God is when a sinner is born again and regenerated by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your testimony is important and you have a story to tell. In verses 1 through 20, uh, they reveal the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And there's three truths that really mark his testimony that if you've really been saved, they're going to mark your life as well. Number one, I want you to notice that religion cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. You know, the, the Apostle Paul, whose name here is Saul, he was, he was raised a Pharisee. Uh, he grew up under those teachings. Remember, at the conclusion of the Minor Prophets, there's about 400 years of silence known as the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's when uh, the, Judo, the Israeli religion, as far as uh, the Judaizers and, and the beginning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's really when that, that really began to grow the doctrine of the Pharisees. And, and that's, the, that's the religion that the Apostle Paul was, was brought up under. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, he said it probably the greatest religious teacher as far as uh, the Jews considered the Pharisees, and that was at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, he sat under his feet, and so he, he would have been the Billy Graham uh, of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's where Paul went to Sunday school. And so he didn't accept Christ. He didn't receive him. He continued. He was part of those. When Jesus said, uh, John says of Christ, he came into his own and his own received him not. That included the apostle Paul. That was Saul. He rejected who Christ was. And so he saw Christ as a threat to the religion uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Judaic religious system of the day. And so because of that, verse number 1 says, he wreaked havoc upon the church. Look what the Bible says again in verse number 1. Then Saul's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Remember uh, in Acts chapter 7, we see that everyone that stoned Stephen, they laid their clothes at the feet of a certain individual to watch him. Say, hey, watch my jacket. Hey, hey, watch my coat. Me and you know your wife says this to you all the time. Here, hold my purse. Uh, so it was Saul who watched everybody's goods while they went and picked up rocks and stoned the first martyr of the church. And he was consenting unto his death. He thought that it was a good thing that Stephen was dying because of the message that he had just preached. It was a message that Paul would later preach, that Christ did die, that he was raised from the grave, and that there was only one way to be saved, and it was through him. And so Saul was very zealous as it concerned the Judaic 
religious faith. Uh, he was still breathing threats, verse 1 says, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he even, he even put legs on that. The Bible says he went to the high priest. He asked letters of him to go to the synagogues, verse 2, of Damascus, uh, that he might find any who were of the, the way, the gospel. Uh, and then if he found them, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, it wasn't to, to give them a, a five-day vacation to Jerusalem. It's so that they could be punished because of their faith in Christ. And so he was very active in that persecution. He was a very religious man. That's what you need to understand. He believed in the God of the Old Testament. He believed all of the Old Testament, but he did not receive. And he still believed that God was going to send a Messiah one day, but he surely didn't believe that he'd already been sent and that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to understand that he was a very religious person. But then something happened. Look at verse number 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round about him from heaven. And the Bible says in verse number 4 that he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he wasn't persecuting anyone. He was, he was persecuting these, these Christians. He, was, he didn't believe he was persecuting God, but look what Jesus said. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord, and, and the Lord said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. So it wasn't just these individuals that he was bringing havoc against. It was really the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he needed to understand that all of his activity and all of the well-doing that, that he thought he was doing for the Lord, it was futile and it was in vain. And apparently the Lord had been convicting him over this. God had been dealing with him. The Holy Spirit had been drawing him, helping him to see that the life he was living and the road that he was traveling was not the right way. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Look at your Bibles in verse number 5. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but if you'd been a farmer and living in that time, it, it would have been. The goad was a long stick that had a sharp point, and when your ox or your mule tried to sit down, you would goad it. Now, all of you animal lovers that think they have souls and go to heaven, you probably don't like that, but that's what they would do. They would gouge the fire out of them, and it would, it would make the mule go in the direction and the ox that they wanted it to go. And that was the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, in Saul's life. God was drawing him. God was convicting him. One of the things that he continued to see was the blood of Stephen spilt out upon the ground. He heard the message. He heard the testimony. He was consenting unto his death. He couldn't sleep at night. He was awake. Paul, Saul probably went to the doctor and said, you know, I just I can't sleep. I just got something that's wrong with me. I can't, I can't put my, my hand on it. I'm so, I'm so restless. I can't find any peace at all. Well, friend, the pill wouldn't fix it. It was, the, it was the work of God. God was drawing him to salvation. His religious activity couldn't give him peace. His religious activity, all the work that he kept doing, it just continued to make him miserable. And this is why, friend, he didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. His sin was ever before him. Paul would say as he testified to King Agrippa, now later in his ministry, as he's renamed to Paul, the Jews that he once helped now hate him. And he spent several months in the seaside palace of a man by the name of Felix. Well, Felix was replaced by a man by the name of 
Festus. And when Paul had appealed to go see Caesar, King Agrippa came to speak with him and to hear his testimony and to hear a word from him. In Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts not just from Luke's perspective of what happened in Acts chapter 9, but it's from Paul's mouth. Paul begins to share his testimony story and how he came to know the Lord. But listen to what he says in Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Paul says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, in the direction I was going to think that I could be right with God, to one day die and go to heaven, he said, I thought I had to do all these things that were contrary to his name. Why? Because the message of Christ and the gospel was a threat to the Judaic religious system. Because the priests weren't needed anymore. The Passover lambs weren't needed no more. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, he said, it's finished. And now there was one way for Jew and Gentile to be saved, and it was through the blood that we sang about this morning, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Saul was very religious, but he found no peace, and he found no satisfaction, and he would never know God through all of this. And that's why in Acts chapter 26 and verse 15, he recounts personally the conversation that the Lord had with him. And when he says, Who art thou, Lord? In verse number 15, Jesus had to introduce himself. So here's, don't miss this. Here's a man who was very religious, but he didn't personally know Jesus Christ. He had to ask who he was, and Jesus had to introduce himself to him. And that's why Jesus says, don't miss this this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus from his own lips says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? When all the lost of the world stand before the great white throne of Christ. Many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? If Paul had not got saved, a man named Saul would have stood at the great white throne and would have said, Lord, was I not consenting unto the death of Stephen? All those people that said that salvation can come only through Jesus Christ, did I not go and seek to see those people? I was zealous. I was a religious person. Everything I did, I did in the name of Jehovah God. Why am I here? Now listen to what Jesus says. He will say to all those people who were religious but lost. He says, and now I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want you to listen to me this morning. You can be religious, but that activity better be the result of a relationship that you have with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus you're lost, friend, and he better know you through a personal, saving relationship. And listen, that's the damning truth about the doctrine of the good Baptist. Hell's going to be full of Baptist people who sat on pews, who came to Sunday school, who stood up in testimony time and just said, well, I just want to say I love the Lord. And then they began to spout off all of these things. And so they could tap their toe to every song. They knew every gospel song that had ever been written. They'd done all kinds of work within the church. But the one thing missing, friend, that separated them in eternity, where they spent eternity, was that they never received Jesus Christ to be Lord of their life. They were religious, but they were lost. 
And religion is the one thing Satan uses here in the South to blind people and to make them think that they're okay. And it will help you as you seek to live on mission. You better realize that you're surrounded by people every single day who grew up in church, who grew up around church, but they were never born again. We saw this in the life of Joab on Wednesday night, and sometimes we're going to preach that whole message so the whole church can hear it. But Joab was a man, he was brought up in David's family. David is a type of Christ. David was the first king to sit upon the throne in Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ will be the last king to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, Joab was brought up in the family of David. He knew all about David. He had an affection for David, but he, ne but he never received David to be his personal king. Joab did many things for David. He, he had service. He was warring. But at the end of his life, the judgment of David fell on Joab because Dave, Joab never loved David with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm telling you, hell's going to be full of people that sat on Baptist pews, that called themselves Baptists when their obituary was written. It'll have that they attended such and such a church. I read one the other day. It says, you know, she was of the, the Christian faith. That's what it said about the woman. But friend, none of those things matter. Unless first, there's a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you see that this morning, will you say amen? amen. So you've got to understand that. Because doctrine that's been preached for years was, will just come forward, you know, and, and sign a card, and, and we'll baptize you, and then just work, 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 and heaven's where you'll go. No, Jesus said, accept your opinion. You, you must receive Jesus. You must be Born again. You must be born again. So religion can't save you. The second thing you need to see from Paul's testimony is that repentance and faith are necessary. The two things you've got to explain to someone when you're sharing a gospel presentation is one must repent of their sin, and then one must by faith trust Christ to be Lord of their life. You know, as we do so many more things now online, uh, I refinanced a house and then I put a mortgage uh, on the house, and we're selling the one that we had been living in. You know, I never signed the first piece of paper to do that. I did everything on my telephone. Every bit of it. You can sign electronically on your phone, but you got to be careful because you end up reading 60 pages of all this little fine lawyer print that'll make you go blind. It's all these confusing terms and conditions. And you've got to make sure you've got everything met, and then you have to check down at the bottom that you understand that you've received this, and then you sign your life away in the process. And you're really not even sure what you've signed up for, unless you're a lawyer and you understand all the fine talk. I want you to understand something. There's no, there's no fine print in the gospel. There's no, there's no gotcha. There's two things a person must do in order to be born again. It's to repent of their sin and to by faith trust Jesus to be Lord of their life. The Bible says the gospel is so simple that a fool or wayfaring man cannot err therein. And so Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. If you desire to live on mission and lead someone to Christ, would you say amen? You need to know verse 13, uh, chapter 13 and verse 3 of the book of Luke. You have to know that. You have to know where it is. You have to know who said it. And you have to understand what it meant. Except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Jesus himself says there must be a change of direction in someone's life. That means that all people are born in sin and headed to a place called hell. Someone asked one time, you know, what do I have to do to go to hell? <clears throat> Absolutely nothing. 
Just be born and continue on the road that you're on, and hell's where you'll end up one day. But Jesus said in order to experience him, his forgiveness, and his life, the abundant life, John 10, 10, that only he can give, you have to repent. And remember, repentance is described by three words. There is to concur with God, there's a confession of sin, and ultimately a mark of repentance will be there'll be change. The Bible says that all have sinned. And if someone's going to repent, they have to agree with that. You have to agree with the work of God. Only the Holy Spirit can convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. As the Holy Spirit is convicting someone, they must agree with God. God, that's me. I'm lost, and I stand in need of your forgiveness. And then there must be a confession. God, I've, I've done this. I mean, we're living in a culture now where everything else is somebody's fault. You know, if, if it, it's your upbringing, uh, you know, you, you came from the wrong background, it's the government's fault, school's fault, it's the, it's the teacher's fault. Listen to me. You have to help people understand. If they're lost in their sin, it's nobody's fault but theirs. They were, they were born that way, they received it, and they have to choose to confess. They must own their sin. And say, God, against you and you only have I done this. I confess my sin. So they have to concur with God. They have to confess. And then the change comes after Romans 10, 9 and 10. Listen to what Paul would, would, would write later in his ministry. In the greatest work on salvation. It's, it's the book of Romans. He says in verse number 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confessions made unto salvation. Someone chooses to turn from their sin, that's repentance, and then in so doing, by faith, they turn to Christ, and they receive Him as Lord of their life, believing He's everything that the Bible says that He is, and He says of Himself that He's God's Son, He's God's sinless sacrifice, and that God raised Him from the dead, and you receive Him to be King of your life. And so repentance and faith are necessary. Look what the Bible says in, in verse number 6 of Acts chapter 9. So Saul is there. He's broken against the ground. Jesus is speaking to him. He says, why are you persecuting me? He says in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And Jesus introduced himself. I'm Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. You can't keep kicking against this conviction. I'm drawing you. I'm the one that's made you think about Stephen. I'm the one that's made you think about all these people that you said, yes, put them to death. And so there Paul is now trembling and astonished, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And so he establishes lordship. He gets in on it. And now, here's the thing, friend. When you say Lord, or a person says Lord, I don't know if you mean it or not. A person sitting beside you doesn't know if you mean it or not. If you get to lead someone to Christ this week, and I hope you do, when you pray with them and they say, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Come into my heart. I turn from all my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Save me. Now begin to make me into the person you want me to be. You don't know whether they really meant that or not. You'll see change in days to come, but at that very moment, you have no idea whether the words that are coming from their mouth truly come from a repentant heart. You say, well, where are you trying to go with all this? Listen to what Psalm 94 and verse number 11 says. You ought to write that verse down in the corner of your Bible there. There the Bible says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they're futile. 
The Bible says that the Lord knows the thoughts of man. In Matthew chapter 9 and in verse number 4, the Bible says this of Jesus as he was looking at the Pharisees. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in their hearts? Listen to me. I may not know if the words coming out of your mouth are true. The person sitting beside you may not know whether the words coming out of your mouth are true. The person you're witnessing to, you may not know if whether they're really saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me and save me. But you need to know this, friend. God knows. He knows. So the issue is not, because this is what we grew up, many people grew up in. Just get them to pray the prayer. Just get them to say, if you can just get the person to say these words then they're going to be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches those words must be a reflection of a repentant heart that truly wants Jesus to be Lord of their life. And so God truly knows whether a person really desires for Jesus to be Lord of their life. And so if we see the evidence later on that Saul really did confess Jesus to be Lord of his life. I want to remind you again every chance I get because I certainly grew up here in this in church and Sunday school. No one gets saved by trusting Jesus to be their Savior. You're saved by trusting Jesus to be your Lord and then you're saved. The Bible never says whosoever calls upon the name of the Savior will be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's all kinds of people I'll meet, man. They're glad Jesus is their Savior. They trust, but they don't want him to be Lord of their life. And that's all the crowd in Matthew 7. They believed in Jesus. They believed he died on the cross, but nobody was going to tell them what to do. Nobody would be Lord of their life. Repentance and faith are necessary. It's not about choking somebody down and getting them just to say words. It's about words that are reflected from a truly repentant heart. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 20, to the, to the church at Corinth, Paul would write those same words from Psalm 94 and verse 11. He was reminding that church that God knows your hearts. He, he sees your thoughts. He knows exactly what they are. He knows your motivation for ministry. He knows your motivation for confessing Him as Lord of your life. It, it, it was so with Paul. He really meant it. And the evidence was that he was a bond slave to Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 16, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul said, I am a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean? He says, on the road to Damascus, I laid my life down and I never picked it up again. He says, I just began to follow Christ and let Him live the life through me that he, he wanted to live. How did that come about? Listen to me. Through repentance and faith. That's how. As he turned from the old life, from being Saul, he turned to Jesus Christ in the new life. He surrendered his life to Christ's lordship. He became a bond slave to Jesus Christ. And so really the road that he was on, it was kind of an object lesson. You know, he ended up going on to Damascus, but he didn't go for the same reason. Paul was heading down this road to Damascus to see people put in handcuffs and brought into captivity, either in prison, but ultimately put to death. That was his life. It was, it was a picture of his life. Religious 
but lost. But on that road, he had a head-on collision with Jesus Christ, and he turned and he gave up to God's will. You'd later write in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5 that we're to have the mind of Christ. He says, let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you also. Well, what, what kind of mind? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death. Christ is our example. He wholly surrendered himself to the lordship of Almighty God. That's what Paul did, and friend, that's what every single person who's ever going to be saved must do. It's, it's, not, it's not an option. It's not an upgrade. You know, we, we live in a day of, of upgrades. You, you know, you, you've always got the bottom line that you can buy. That's just the, the person you're buying from trying to get you in the door. But then they'll try to upsell you. You know, you know what upselling is? You ever anybody try to upsell you? Well, I had a guy try to do it one time without me even knowing. I, I went and bought a pair of boots, and he said, here, let's try them on with these. And so he went and got a pair of these insoles and took them out of the package and put them in there. I thought, well, well, that's nice of him. I thought, that's really kind. I must do that for everybody. And I was young when this happened. And so I put them out and said, well, boy, that does feel better. I said, that's, that's nice. And so we got to the cash register, and he, he, he rang up the boots. And then all of a sudden, he rang up the insoles. And I said, no, wait a second. I didn't buy those insoles. He said, well, oh, yeah, uh, well, that, you know, well, that's what we put in there. I said, well, I didn't ask for those. And I said, you're trying to upsell me. And he was embarrassed, and he took them out, very frustrated, put them back in the thing, set them down, put my boots in the bag, and out the door I went. I was like, you rascal, you tried to upsell me. Listen to me. Lordship isn't an upsell. It's not an upgrade. Lordship isn't for those that are ultra-committed to Christ. It's not, you know, we're living in a day where it's, you know, in the minds of people, it's abnormal to be wholly committed to Christ. Listen, friend, in the mind of God, it's abnormal to not be wholly committed to Christ. When Jesus looks at a person who is lukewarm, like the church of Laodicea, just riding the fence in apathy and indifference, he looks at that person as they're abnormal, not the person that's wholly surrendered. And so as you're witnessing to people, don't apologize for repentance and don't apologize for surrender to Christ's lordship. One cannot be saved unless they're wholly repentant and they're wholly, wholly surrendered to the lordship of Christ. If you won't repent and receive the man of salvation, listen, you can't experience the plan of salvation. You must receive the man in order to experience the plan. Repentance and faith are necessary. And third, I want you to notice this. Regeneration always yields change. There's always going to be change. Again, it's not a, the, the plan of salvation, God's, God's work in ministry and seeing people born again. It's not about just getting people to, to say words, to fill out a card, and to rush them to the baptistry and then say, we're good. That's, that's, not, that's not the goal. That, that's just the beginning. And then it's to help them learn to be the follower and learner of Christ and now begin to grow. And that's where the church has failed in past years, is in discipleship. You know, when I grew up, I heard a lot about people being saved and being baptized, but I rarely ever heard the word discipleship. Rarely did I. But, but that's where people really begin to grow and to develop and are prepared for a lifelong service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so regeneration, when one comes to know Christ, 
John 3, 7, and is born again, there's going to be, there's going to be change. And sometimes we do, we question those that say they've trusted Christ. And the reason why is, it's not judging. There's just, there's no, there's no life. There's no fruit. You know, you wouldn't be judging an apple orchard if, you know, you were in the market for an apple orchard. You know, and this time of year, you went to the orchard, and the guy says, oh, I've got a great orchard. This produces great apples. It's wonderful. And you get there, and it's all dead trees. And you'd say, I thought you said you had the apples. Oh, I do. It's, it's right here. Don't you see all the trees? But there's no fruit. And only that, friend, there's no leaves. It's all dead. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's an orchard. No, there's, there's fruit there. No, there's not. There's no fruit. And so most people, they'd be like, well, you're judging. No, friend, that's not judging. If it's really an apple orchard, there's going to be leaves on the trees and there's going to be fruit. Don't you listen to me? If someone's really been born again, there's going to be spiritual fruit that says they've been born again and they've trusted Christ. That's not judging someone. That's seeing fruit. And so we, we do, we, we end up questioning some people. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse number 8, listen to these words as he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell from where it comes and from where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I can't see the wind, but I can see its effects. And friend, I can't see whether the Holy Spirit lives in a person's heart, but I can always see the effect of His presence. Do you understand that this morning? You can't see whether the Holy Spirit lives in someone. You can't see Him because He's invisible. But you're going to be able to see the effects on that person's life just like you can see the effect of the wind on tall grass and in trees that are full of leaves. You can see it. So we're able to see its effects. Well, verse number 17, there was, there was evidence immediately that Saul had been saved. Well, the Bible says very quickly that he immediately begins to respond. That's one of the first, notice, the first things that tells someone's been saved. They begin to be obedient to the Word of God. Jesus told him, you're to rise and to go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. And that's what happened. Saul had some people that helped him, and he moved on to Damascus. He was there for three days without drink or sight. And the Bible says in verse number 10, how'd you like to have this mission? There was a man by the name of Ananias who was there, just serving the Lord, loving the Lord. And all of a sudden, the Lord comes to him in vision one morning and says, I want you to arise and go to a street called Straight, verse 11, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul. Who? Saul. Uh, that would be like, friend, if someone had said, you know, several years ago, uh, the Lord had come to you and said, now listen, I want you to travel to Pakistan, and I want you to go find a name, man by the name of Osama bin Laden. And I want you to tell him that I love him and I want him to be saved. You're like, well, listen, that's the greatest terrorist on earth. He hates Christians. So that's what I want you to do. That's what's happening here. There, there was one name that rang through the church that brought terror, and it was Saul. Nobody was more zealous at wanting to see Christians killed than Saul was. And that's the mission that Ananias had. He says, I want you to go find this guy, Saul, and tell him how much I love him. I've got a mission for him. You're going to lay hands on him. And oh, by the way, he's, he's already praying. He's growing. And Ananias says, now, Lord, you don't know what, I, are you sure you know what I know? 
Verse 13, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's got authority. And the Lord said, go. He's my chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles. And I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias went on his way. He entered the house and laid his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Friend, listen, that's the, that the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. That's, he's the one who brings about regeneration. He's the one who gives you the power to know God and to serve God. And so it's the first mark of, of maturity is the presence and the work and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then notice the change that becomes now. Not only is he now filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says immediately, verse 18, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he was arose, and he was, he was baptized. Baptism is the first act of obedience in the life of a, of, a, of a believer. I want you to understand something. Baptism's not optional. You may choose never to be baptized, but baptism by immersion always comes after salvation. It's not essential for salvation, but it's essential for obedience. And I'm just talking to you straight this morning because I love you. If you've been saved but you've never been baptized by immersion, you're out of fellowship with God today. You, you have to be baptized by immersion. James 4, 17 says, To him that doth do good and doth not, to him it's sin. To not be baptized by immersion after salvation is, is to have sin in your life between you and Jesus. It's not something you think about, or you pray, but you wait. The Bible says immediately he did that. He wanted everyone to know that he was identifying himself with the finished work of Christ. He has died with Christ. He's been buried with Christ. The old life of Saul is gone, and he's been raised to walk in newness as Paul. That's what it demonstrated to everyone. And so now he's beginning to discover God. He's discovered prayer, verse 11. He's discovering the Word. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul would write, later write that the natural man, he thought about himself as old Saul. Saul knew so much Old Testament Scripture, but he really didn't understand it. He couldn't see Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit lives within him. The natural man perceives not the things of God, neither can he know them, for they're spiritually discerned. Now that the Holy Spirit lives in Saul's life, he's able to read all that Old Testament Scripture, and it just starts coming to life. And now he's joining himself to other Christians. Now he doesn't want to kill them. He wants to spend time with them. Look what the Bible says in verse number 19. After he was baptized, he received food. He's a Baptist. And he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He wanted to be around other like-minded believers. Now, fence-riding believers, they'll drive you nuts. People that just straddle the fence... They'll absolutely drive you nuts in ministry. But Christians that are all in, they love Jesus, they love His Word, they're, they're surrendered to ministry. Man, there's nothing more encouraging than to be around other like-minded believers in the fellowship of the gospel. Somebody that understands that and knows that's true, say amen. There's nothing like it. I mean, it's just so encouraging to be around other like-minded believers. Not sit and talk about all our aches and pains and what's hurting and just gripe about this and what's wrong with country and politics and all these other things, but just to sit around and talk about the goodness of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's, there's nothing like that. And so now he doesn't want to kill Christians. He wants to grow 
with Christians. He's changed. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, friend, he got busy doing what God commanded him to do. Look at verse number 20. The Bible says, Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Why was he doing that? Because that's what God told him to do. And so he just immediately begins to start serving God. The old life's gone. The new life's before him. And he starts in just simple baby steps being obedient to what God's called him to do. He went to where all of his old buddies were, his old Judaizer buddies, and those that hated Christians said, Hey, look, I need to talk to you. The way we used to live, it's wrong. I've been saved. I've trusted Jesus to be Lord of my life. He is the Messiah. He is God's Son. And God did raise him from the grave because he spoke face to face with me and he changed my life. And you need to receive him too. He just went and began to share that message. Regeneration always yields change. There's going to be a change of life, a change of direction, a change of appetites. He preached Jesus with his life and with his lips. And I appreciate this too. Look what the Bible says in verse number 22 of Acts chapter 9. The Bible says, And Saul increased all the more in strength. It wasn't just a six-week experience and then he was gone. It wasn't just an emotional decision. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't write a book about the light. You know, in his experience being blind for those days. What it's like to have fish scales on your eyes and develop a sport group for other people with fish scales. On their eyes. It, it, he didn't do that. It wasn't just this emotional thing. It was a life-changing moment. And he continued in that new life with Christ. If someone's really been saved, friend, there's not going to be a, a, a big sprint and then they just fall off and begin to live the old life. That's not regeneration. There's going to be continued growth in the Lord. He increased all the more and more in strength and confounded the Jews. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, this is Paul writing to the churches in Galatia to address the very doctrine of the Judaizers. That, well, Jesus did come, but you also have to be a Jew. He says, God called me, verse 16, to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He said, when he first did this, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. But he says, but I went for a short time into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Well, what happened? He went off into Arabia where he communed with flesh and blood. That is, he just got alone with God and all of that Old Testament scripture began to come alive. Paul studied to show himself approved that the ministry which God had called him to do, he would be able to perform. He did the work. He did the effort. Don't miss this. Paul got up every morning and he read his Bible. Paul got up every morning and spent time in prayer. Paul purposed when he left that morning after making tents that, that he was going to try to reach somebody for Christ. He was an on-mission Christian. How did all this come about? Because God changed his life. Real regeneration always yields change. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, in the last fleeting moments of his life, Paul could say truthfully, I've fought a good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. What race had he finished? The course that God set before him on the road 
to Damascus. Paul pushed the road that he had decided he would walk on the side, and he decided he would run by faith in Jesus Christ the race that had been set before him. In Acts chapter 26, Paul again ministering and seeking to, to tell King Agrippa what had happened to him. Began to speak in verse number 21 of Acts chapter 26. And he said, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple. He says, And they tried to kill me. Just because I was preaching the gospel that I was once against. But Paul says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. What's Paul saying? He says, I preached the word of God, and I was faithful to the word of God, and I was faithful to the will of God. Don't miss this. How did all of that come about? Because when Paul repented and Paul trusted Jesus to be Lord of his life, he was spiritually born again. And there was a change that took place because Saul died and a new man was born inside his body. It was Paul. And the Holy Spirit began to live that life through him. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17, Paul would write thinking back on his own life. He would say, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Regeneration always yields change. You know, verse passage of Scripture you need to write down, and I hope one will grip you this morning if you've never been saved. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and that, you know, I hope it's true in your Bible, it is in mine, these words are in red. Does, does that mean that Matthew said this? Who said this? Who? Jesus Christ said this. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's the will of God? Be born again. Surrender to the new life that he has for you. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? The equivalent for us today was a member of the church, served in VBS, all the various things that are tied to the church. I did work for the church. I believed in God. But Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Are these truths a reality in your life today, friend, in the Apostle Paul? Have you really been born again? Have you, have you really repented of sin and by faith trusted Jesus to be Lord of your life? And is there change? Remember the three marks of real repentance? To concur with God, to confess your sin, and then what's the result that comes about by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ? Real repentance toward Christ and faith and surrender toward Him always yields what? Change. There's going to be change. Is there change in your life? Friend, listen to me. You're going to stand at one or two seats one day. Why don't you listen? You're either going to be at the judgment seat of Christ or you're going to stand at a great white throne. There's no other place you'll be but those two. If you've trusted Jesus wholly to be your Lord and Savior, you'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what you've done in ministry. But listen, if you've never been born again, you're going to be at that Matthew 7 crowd at the great white throne. 
And you don't have to. If you've not truly trusted Christ to be Lord of your life, repenting and trusting Him to be Lord over all of your life, then do it today and do it right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Have you really been saved? Have you really trusted Jesus to be Lord of your life? If you haven't, do it right now. Confess to Him the desire of your heart that you want to be saved. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be. Tell Him so just like this, silently where you sit. God, forgive me a sinner. I confess my sin today. I believe that you died for me. I believe you rose again. I turn from all the sin that's in my life and I submit my life to your Lordship. Save me. I trust you to be king of my life. Now make me and mold me into the person you want me to be. That's my confession today. Did you mean that today? You prayed it with all your heart? Then I'm going to stand here at the front and I want to receive you this morning to encourage you in what God wants to do next in your life. Won't you be bold? Won't you step out when they begin to sing in just a moment? Just make your way forward and say, I've trusted Christ. I wonder if there's someone that you're burdened about. They show no interest in the things of God whatsoever. They're not active in the local church. They're not living, not seeking to live a life of holiness. They talk about God from time to time and they say they've been saved. But there is no evidence of lasting change in their life. None. Friend, we see from God's Word today that real regeneration always yields lasting change. I hope that truth will help you today to, to be able to pray in the right direction. It may be that you just need to go talk to that person, really challenge them about whether they've really ever been born again because real regeneration always yields change. And I pray that the marks of this text will further burden you and equip you and help you as we seek as a church family to live on mission in these days. Father, speak to us today. Lord, we're living in a world that is, seems to just be spinning out of control. But I pray we'll be reminded today, God, you're on your throne. God, you're not surprised or overwhelmed by anything. And Father, I pray that in these days, your church would be marked by a love for you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and a love for our neighbor. And God, we demonstrate our love for you and them by continuing to live on mission in these days. God, I pray the truths of this text that will mark the life of everyone who's been born again will be a reflection of our life, but also, Lord, we will use to challenge and to talk with others and share with them as we seek to lead them to a place where they'll turn and receive you to be Lord of their life. Bless this time. God, I pray for someone here who's been saved, but they've never followed you in believers' baptism. We pray they'll step forward this morning and be faithful in that. Father, we know others are burdened with hardships and challenges that they're walking through in these days. Father, I pray that we'll experience your grace afresh and new today as we turn that problem over in our lives to you again and trust you to do the work that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let's reverently stand to our feet. Heads are bowed.